0: Today is the final Sunday in the Christian calendar. Next week, believe it or not, is the first Sunday of Advent. I can't believe I'm saying those words. Today is also Christ the King Sunday, which is one of those feast days that doesn't get the same press as Easter or Christmas. I doubt we've been texting our family and friends, making plans for Christ the King. Maybe I wrong. and I'm not chastising us about that. We probably have legitimate reasons for thinking of this day uh, differently than others. It's a latecomer to the calendar. It may be that you've even uh, you're, you've not even heard of Christ the King Sunday. It made its appearance just under a hundred years ago in 1925. Now, this doesn't mean that the church didn't begin to think of Christ as king until 1,925 years after Christ's appearance. Our Gospel reading in Luke is clear with its statement about the kingship of Christ, even though the pronouncement in Luke in that reading was from Pontius Pilate, who uttered those words with more than a bit of mockery. The Church has always since the Apostles worshiped Jesus as King. But Christ the King Sunday made its appearance in a year that strikes me as fascinating, looking back on it. Mussolini had been in power for three years. Hitler was out of jail, and his Nazi party was rapidly growing in popularity, and the world was hurtling headlong into and economic depression. I'm guessing that for a lot of people, it did not feel like Christ was King. It still feels counterintuitive, given the chaos in our world, to have a day where we proclaim Christ as King of all things. All we have to do is turn on the news and wonder, who really is in charge here? Interesting. Why? a pronouncement about that at a time like this. Christ the King was, in 1925, and is today, a pronouncement against the kingdoms and the powers of this world, those kingdoms that embrace power and oppression as a means to glory. It's a day where the Church collectively declares to the world that you may elect whom you will, and you may flex your military muscles, and you may exclude His followers from the public square, but none of that changes the fact that you're not in charge. Jesus of Nazareth is. You may think you are. You may feel like you are. You may be told that you are in charge. But things aren't always what they seem to be. And God has done something in His Son, Jesus of Nazareth, that we and this world cannot possibly fathom. His cross has overcome death. Darkness can't withstand His light. Hope and love are more powerful than bombs. The poor and homeless and victimized are not overlooked, unnoticed, or unloved. The children we've lost to cancer and abortion are in fact not lost. The destiny of the world isn't resting in a political party, or a madman in Russia, or a corrupt politician in Washington, or a city council in Portland, or the success of the international monetary fund. The only one who could possibly be in charge is the one who holds the keys to our greatest and only enemy, Death. And if God really does kill death by the death of Christ, then only Christ can be the key. John Owen's title to his 17th century classic is still the best, the best title ever. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I don't know if his publisher came up with it, or he did, It's actually longer than that. You know, they were in the 16th and 17th centuries. They always had subtitles that went on and on. A treatise against blah, blah, blah. But all we need to remember is the death of death in the death of Christ. And that makes him king. Christ the King Sunday is the relativization of all the other kingdoms and powers and principalities and forces that purport to be in charge, whether it feels that way to us Or not. Now that should be a powerful word of comfort to us to get up tomorrow morning and to face whatever it is we're facing. Christ is King. We should preach the kingship of Christ to ourselves every single day. It's the linchpin of the gospel, it's the key motif in the Bible, it's the hope for our future. It's the grounding of our own identity. It's the all-encompassing explanation of why there's something rather than nothing, and it tells us where this world is headed. The world and the future world depend on Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. (laughs) We could just stop, right? At least this is what all, this is all that the Apostle Paul believes based on what we read in Colossians. And in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells us this man I've just described to you in chapter 1, put your roots, the roots of your life, deep into him, into this man Jesus. Go all in with Christ the King. Did you notice in the reading that Richard? read for us, our New Testament reading. Did you notice how many times the word all appears in that text? All power. All endurance and patience. Firstborn of all creation. All things were created by Him. He says that one twice, just to make sure we don't miss it. He's before all things. In Him, all things hold together. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because all things were made by Him and... What's that other little preposition that appeared? For Him. All things were made by Him and for Him. That's why there is something rather than nothing. And in Him all the fullness of God dwells. Everything. Everything that you will ever know or be able to tell or learn or discern about God is seen in Jesus Christ. In Him, all the fullness of God dwells. He reconciles to Himself all things. Why would we go anywhere else? There is nowhere else. There is only this all in this person. Like Peter said, To Jesus, do you remember? To whom shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, I'll admit it, I, like you, frequently feel like Christ is anything but King of all things. All the glorious language of the prophets and Jesus' own pronouncement of the arrival of the kingdom of God can ring hollow at times against the clamor of stories depicting all sorts of tragedies, tragedies of war. This week I saw a news spot somewhere, I don't remember exactly where, about a family in Bangladesh whose husband and father died while building a stadium in Qatar so billionaire soccer players could entertain the world. They've received nothing from that government, from people who live in literal palaces. They don't lift a finger to bring justice to these people, and now the breadwinner for that family is gone, and they have spiraled into poverty as if it wasn't bad enough already. I'll admit... Sometimes it doesn't sound like Christ is King when a drunk driver slams into the back of a car and a father and his eighth grade son die in a fiery crash and the drunk walks away unscathed. Has it happened last week in Los Angeles? Yeah, I admit it. Don't think for a moment that the Apostle Paul was naive and didn't understand the reality of tragedy and suffering. He was well acquainted with it, much more so than most of us. And yet, he doesn't hesitate to pin this sweeping, all-encompassing, absolute, without-disclaimer declaration that everything, everyone, all, 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 is created, preserved, governed by, and restored in Jesus Christ, the King, without qualification. And here's what is supremely astonishing about this King of all things. Everything he possesses and rules and owns, he gives away to us. So that when we have him, we have everything. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack for anything, the psalmist says. There are several words besides all that jumped out at me in this text. Two of them were inheritance and firstborn. Do you see those? Uh, Jesus, Paul says is the firstborn, the firstborn of creation, and the firstborn from among the dead. Kind of a strange phrase. But he gives Jesus a title. The titles we know of, Savior, Lord, Servant, King, Master, Teacher, all of those are certainly true, but he has another one, and the other one is firstborn. Now, in the world of the Bible, birth order is hugely significant. It sort of is in our world, too, but not to the same degree. When your first child is born, the photo album is overflowing with pictures more than anyone outside your family would ever care to look at. When the second child comes along, from time to time you remember to pick up the phone or the camera and snap a photo. By the time the third one comes along, you don't know where your camera is or even how to operate it these days, you completely forgot about it. Birth order carries some weight in our world, but it's more just intriguing than anything else. If we have an inheritance to give our children, it's normally a bit of money, perhaps our house, our keepsakes that we've valued over the years and And then we normally divide them equally amongst the children. Not a big deal, just a process that we have to go through. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that at all. Land was the greatest commodity because it was an agricultural world, so a family might have a piece of property to pass on to their children. If they had ten children, which wasn't unusual in that day, and this one piece of land was divided between the ten, kind of following our pursuit, and then further between the grandchildren and so on, pretty soon there wouldn't be any land to pass on. The family name and social standing would pass away. So instead of dividing the land equally, the bulk of the father's wealth and power and social standing and everything went to the firstborn son. He would inherit most everything. And if you weren't the firstborn son, then you were just out of luck. Now, it sounds reprehensible to us, especially if we are not firstborns, but this was common practice in the ancient world. Something strange happens in the Bible, though. It turns the practice on its head. The inheritance keeps going to the wrong person. Do you notice this? You can see this especially in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. In nearly every case in that book, the younger sons keep getting the inheritance. They keep receiving the special blessing of God. In the very first family that we hear about, Abel, the younger brother, is blessed by God and Cain is cursed for his own sin. Abraham is chosen by God to be the father of Israel and to bless the world, and his eldest son, who is Ishmael, He was to receive the blessing and inheritance, but it goes to Isaac. The same thing happens in Isaac's family. Isaac has two sons, Esau, Jacob, and the blessing goes to the younger one, Jacob, who got it through a bit of trickeration. And in spite of that, the trickeration, even by means of the deceitfulness, which is an interesting little tidbit, God blesses Jacob so much that He gives Jacob a new name, Israel, the name his descendants would take as their own. Now, to this point in Israel's history, the firstborn hasn't received any of the inheritance and has no standing or power or anything like that. Everything is going to the one who doesn't deserve it. What about Jacob's family? Does it change there? Reuben is the firstborn, but the kings of Judah will come from his brother, or the kings of Israel, rather, will come from his brother Judah. Judah's family is an interesting one. Judah has twins. You remember this story? One of them, Zerah, while they were being born, stuck out his hand first, so the midwife wanted to make sure the firstborn got the credit, so she ties a ribbon around Zerah's uh, wrist. But then, as it happened, Perez, the other twin, ended up being born first. And Perez receives the inheritance. Then near the end of Genesis, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And in this extended scene, the author of Genesis takes some time to tell us about Jacob's blessing of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the elder, Ephraim the younger. Jacob brings the boys to his father, or Joseph rather, brings the boys to his father Jacob. Jacob stretches out his hands and then he switches them. The right hand being the hand of blessing, he puts it on Ephraim's head Rather than on Manasseh, Joseph tries to correct the situation, and Jacob said, Nope, this is the way that it is. Things are not going according to plan. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The one who keeps getting blessed in the Bible is the one who doesn't deserve it, didn't earn it by birth, or talent, or looks, or money, or brains. And they especially don't deserve it if they were conniving and underhanded like Jacob was. It doesn't stop there. Moses was Aaron's younger brother. And the great king of Israel, David, through whom the royal line would stretch all the way to Jesus, was the youngest of Jesse's eight and the one overlooked and nearly forgotten about when Samuel came. To anoint the next king. So strange. I wonder why God keeps going along with all these oversights. I wonder why he keeps skipping the fixed firstborn, blessing the ones who don't deserve it, the ones who don't have it all together, the ones whose lives are anything but models for us. Adulterers. Sneaky, conniving, murderers, even. When the nation of Israel finally arrived in the promised land, they divided the land amongst the tribes. God repeatedly told them, This is the inheritance I have given you. There's that word. And they all got their fair share, except one tribe. You remember which ones? The Levites. Levites were the priests. They were the ones who served in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, on a daily basis, leading the people in worship in obedience to the law, or at least that was the calling. Instead of a portion of land, God said their inheritance was the Lord. They wouldn't be given an inheritance of property. They would share a joyful life-giving relationship with God, and they would pass that on to the people of God. Of course, none of this is an oversight on God's part. God just seems to have a thing about blessing a bunch of rascals, of undeserving, underhanded, self-centered sinners who are bent on their own self-destruction. People who have no standing, no blue blood, no inherent honor to speak of. Rather than using the normal means of blessing through the firstborn, God distributes His grace with reckless abandon, giving His people precisely what they don't deserve in the way they would never expect it to arrive. All the other firstborns have been skipped. But the inheritance... God's grace and blessing is still alive. It's just been going to the ones we never expected to get. And now, now, St. Paul announces that the man who was born to a pure, or sorry, poor, obscure virgin, raised in the no-name town of Nazareth, followed by uneducated fishermen, who died a violent slave's death at the hand of the superpower of the day, is now King, and he is the firstborn. The firstborn. Not a firstborn. The one we've been expecting, the one we've been hoping for, the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead. That means that He owns the whole earth, seen and unseen, everything, creation and the unseen life. He holds the keys to the grave itself. He is Christ the King. Nothing can contain Him. No one can overthrow Him. No power can withstand Him. There are no firstborns worthy enough to inherit the fullness of the glory of God other than this man, Jesus. He's the only one worthy to receive the fullness of the Father's inheritance. Now, here's what Paul says. The Father who has, our reading said, enabled, another English translation has it, qualified. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, in light he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. None of the other 1st were worthy enough. Only this one, only Christ the King. All of our mess and sin, all of that stuff that we brought in the room tonight. All of the wandering in our own hearts and the wandering in our own minds. All of those self-destructive habits that we just can't seem to shake. All of those broken relationships. All of that petty jealousy and complaining and grumbling. All of that misplaced ambition. All of that anger, the ones who have done us wrong all of it puts us on a path careening towards death. And Christ the King plants his cross in front of us and says, no, I have an inheritance for you. I own it all. I own everything that you need. I will give it to you, my blessing. Do you ever wonder if God's grace has a limit for you? That there might not be enough, especially since you keep doing the same old things that you regularly ask forgiveness for. Do you ever wonder if there's only so much grace in your heavenly bucket, and when it runs out, that's it? I can see why we might think that. But that would only be true if Christ isn't Christ the King. If He is, if He's the firstborn of creation and the dead, then He is over all things, and all that He has in heaven and on earth is yours. Joy, hope, Love, purity, faithfulness, grace, all of it for you with no end. Why would we ever look for anything else, for any other inheritance, for any other hope in this life and the next when we have Christ the King? Thanks be to God.